Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today, you'll be listening to Stephen Silva, former pastor of the East Lansing University and the Lansing Spanish Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now, here's Pastor Silva. Good morning. You know that Sabbath like these are important for pastors because we see who the real saints are in the church, right? You know, sanctification is a work of a lifetime, but I think it's accelerated in the winters of Michigan, right? It really, it really shows. Now, I want to thank you for making the effort to come to church today. And they were telling me four to eight inches of snow. And I said, no matter what, church is on. Church is on today. And so thank you for joining in. If you're watching online, we thank you for those who are following us online in the warmth of their homes or cars or wherever they are. But we also have a great service here. Well, today I want to do something that I left halfway finished. A couple of months ago, we started a sermon series of two, going through the Ten Commandments of Marriage. And I left the end of the sermon saying, next time you hear my voice, we're going to be finishing up. And I think that was two months ago. So before I leave, I want to keep my word not to leave you hanging on a cliff. So if you're not married, that's okay, because these principles really apply to all relationships. Also, if you're not married, you might be married one day, you don't know. And also, it's important if you are past that age or you're beyond that to know that there are a lot of young people, other people who need instruction in relationships and in marriage. So take it as something that everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to know. And today we want to finish the second part of the Ten Commandments of Marriage. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much because you created us to be in a relationship with you and then you also created in this world relationship between other persons. And we're thankful that your plan was beautiful and perfect and we just want to honor you as we learn how to go back into that relationship. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Guinness Book of Records. Have you guys, when you were young, did you ever buy the Guinness Book of Records? It's really interesting, really cool. I used to look through and see what the world records were of different things. Now, generally, it falls into two major categories, the good records and the bad records, right? And so the good records was things like people who have, you know, climbed the highest mountain or did the marathon in the shortest amount of time. But then there's other records that are not so great, like the one who's eaten the most cockroaches or, you know... People who have not cut their nails in the longest amount of years. You remember that? It was a picture of a guy with his nail, like, just curling around. And so Guinness Book of Records has good records and then other records that are not so good. One of the records that still stands, it's a 12-year-old record, is from Alexandria native-born woman called Linda Lou Taylor. And she has a record for 12 years of being married the most times. How many times do you think she's been married? Five times? Ten times? Fifteen? Twenty? 
She's been married 23 times. And she was listed in the Guinness Book World of Records as the most married woman in history. She's 68 years old, and she has been in her lifetime a Scot. She's been, these are last names, she's been a Scot, a Street, a Smith, a Moyer, a Mossy, a McMillan, a Braceford, a Chandler, an Essex, and we can't name all 23, but she holds that Guinness Book of Records for most marriages. Now, listen to this. Despite the failure of her 23 marriages and being single now for the last 12 years, she, Taylor, has mentioned that she has not ruled out on a future marriage. She said, I would get married again because, you know, she said, it gets lonely. It gets lonely. Now, what's interesting is that her first marriage in 1957, she says to her first husband, George, was the nicest and the best marriage that she's had. And I think about it and I say, what if she would have gotten it right the first time? What was missing? She would have made the book, you know, the Guinness World Book of Records, but I don't think that was a great accomplishment in her own mind either. What if it would have gone good with the first person? And isn't that the goal and the plan when we get married? It's not that we plan on it ending and doing another try and another try and another try. We all go with good intentions, those who are married into marriage. You tell the person that you love them, they tell you that they love you. But many times the problem is that we don't know how to love each other. Now, you could be said the same is for a relationship with God. The Bible says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. And we go into that relationship and we say, Lord, I love you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, but then we go in with good intentions and we don't quite know how to love God. And so God in his mercy instructs us, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then you have this list of 10 ways to express your love towards God. And I just love this because it gives you direction it gives you something concrete instead of just good intentions and good emotions. You know, I'm going to be moving in a couple of weeks now, and I had to get rid of everything in my house, and that was quite liberating, except for one thing that was not quite liberating. I've been talking about this for the last two years, the playset that I bought my children in the backyard. It was three-fourths finished, and I lost the instructions on how to build it. And once I lost that, it became a dead project. And every time I'd go in the backyard, I'd look at that and feel like a failure. Finally, I sold it and the man came to pick it up and he asked me for the instruction manual. And I said, it's gone. It's lost. And thankfully, he took it because now it's not my problem anymore. It's not my burden anymore. But there's a frustration in our marriage relationships when we have the good intentions, we want to love the other person, but many times things go wrong because we feel like we just don't know what to do. You don't get that instruction manual when you get married that says, here, this is exactly how you're supposed to do it. But as we open up the Bible, we find that the principles that apply to our relationship with God also apply to our relationships with one another. 
So we're going to look at commandment number 5 through 10. And obviously these are primarily written for our relationship with God and loving God by loving others. But we also can see how they apply directly to the marriage relationship. So we would begin with the first one, which is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. And it's very short and very simple. In marriage, you should not, <laughs> you should not kill, right? Well, yes, but we're going a little deeper than that. The Bible says you shall not murder. Now, what is the application of the principle here in the marriage relationship? I have a quote from an author that we're going to be seeing throughout this sermon that tells us a little bit of what it means not to murder or not to kill in the marriage relationship. It says, one should not kill a spouse with neglect, cutting remarks, domination. Many wives become non-persons engulfed by their husbands, and many husbands become hollow shells dry of self-worth by unappreciative, demeaning, and demanding wives. Can you kill a wife? Can you kill a husband in the marriage relationship even though they're still breathing, walking, talking, eating? Yes, there is murder in marriage relationships. But the murder is one that happens through neglect, cutting remarks, and domination. Let me read you just a little illustration. Leo and Rachel have been married for 11 years. Both come from families where to survive, one needed a sharp tongue and a sharp wit. You know families like that, right? It's always like boom, boom, boom. They always got a sharp tongue and sharp wit. Now, they bring these well-honed skills into their marriage and they proceed to inflict tremendous injury on one another using biting sarcasm, cruel criticism, and even stony silence they constantly fight with each other. Blow after blow rains down upon them until for all intents and purposes, the marriage is dead. They have literally killed their marriage. So the principle is that you shouldn't kill your marriage by neglect. You need to pay attention to the needs of your spouse because it says that no one should kill a marriage by seeking to control or dominate one's spouse. Instead, we need to release control by unleashing love. Let's go back to this quote. No one should kill a marriage by criticism and put-downs. Be lavish in praise and stingy in criticism. For every single criticism should be compensated with seven, what? Seven praises. You know, those are like the little gems you should probably be writing down right here, okay? I think that if you just stick to something as simple as that, that for every criticism, you give seven praises. Now think about how your marriage would be transformed from death until life if that happened. Because cutting criticism blows kill a marriage. And I think that goes for any relationship. I mean, even a dog. I mean, who's had a pet here, a dog before, right? I mean, dogs hear your tone of voice. You're an ugly dog. If you tell that to your dog every day, you're a bad dog. You're an ugly dog. You're going to see pretty soon that dog's going to be walking around like half depressed and half sad. But, you know, if you come with that excitement, oh, you're a beautiful boy. You're a kind boy. It's amazing how we express love, appreciation, and kindness to one another changes everything. I mean, who would like to get married to someone who every 
time they're around each other, they're saying, you know what? You just are so special to me because you are hardworking. Because you smile, that smile that lights up my day. Because you are a good father. Because you are a husband that pays attention to me. And yeah, you could pick up your socks every once in a while. You don't do that too good. But you do all these other things right. Would that kill a marriage? Or would that bring life to a marriage? That would bring life. So what the Bible is trying to tell us is that it's important to make sure that we are feeding life into our marriage and not feeding death. Never, never allow anger to accumulate in the heart. You know, in divorce court, you have to put a reason for separation. And as we said before, many times couples, when they're deciding to get divorced, they just can't narrow it down. Like, what is that one thing that causes, you know, divorce? What is that one event, that one word, that one action? And they're left scratching their head. And so the court system had to come up with this term because no one could come up with a reason called unreconcilable differences, right? And what does that really mean? That means I can't really express why we're getting divorced, but our marriage is dead. And really the reason that many marriages die is not because one event, not because just one thing happened. It's this accumulation of anger. Accumulation of hurt that has slowly killed the marriage relationship. But that's important to know because you have an opportunity not to let it accumulate. Couples should not let the sun go down on their anger. Nothing kills love more than anger. Unresolved anger always kills relationships. Always kills relationships. You hold it against that person. I mean, in marriage counseling, many times they're talking about something that happened 10 years ago, eight years ago, but you never said sorry. You never apologized. And these things have accumulated one on top of the other until no matter how many good intentions, there is no more love in the marriage. So what do we need to do? We need to pledge And remember, it's not only me, it's you that's doing this pledge. So let us pledge together to put this principle of action in our relationships, specifically in marriage relationships. Are you ready? We're going to do this together. One, two, three. We pledge by the grace of God to infuse our marriage with life-giving and life-sustaining deeds. Wow, that's powerful. You can give life to your marriage relationships. And let us go to Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11 to just bring that all together in a Bible scripture. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 11. Are you there? It says in Proverbs 29, verse 11, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Nothing deflates a spouse's self-esteem as criticism. So don't kill your marriage by seeking control or to dominate. Instead, unleash love. Unleash what? Love. Unleash love. 
All right, let's go to the next one. Next one is commandment number seven, found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. And it says there that you shall not commit what? You shall not commit adultery. Now, what does this mean? One should not allow other alliances, not work, ministry, friends, children, or self, to which one gives their total self. Only God and one spouse have the right to all. The right to all. Now listen to this example. It says, Leonard and Loretta have been married for 15 years. They are the proud parents of four children. Both of them are professionals making good salaries. They are also church-going Christians. They have a fairly good marriage until the last five years when things started to go downhill. Leonard is unsatisfied due to lack of affection from his wife. Every intimation towards her is rebuffed except in the fleeting moments. Leonard feels rejected and isolated from his wife. One day, he encounters a young woman named Jane who seems generally interested in him. They strike up a friendship. They both recognize the enjoyment of each other's company and spend many hours talking. They feel bonded together. The husband feels a renewed sense of rejuvenation when he is with Jane. Before long, he falls in love with her. Although he never went to bed with her, he feels a sense of guilt about the relationship. But he feels compelled to continue his relationship with Jane because it fills a deep void in his heart. What do you think? Is that adultery? Yes or no? They haven't done anything physical. But is that adultery? It is, because he's opening up his heart. He's giving his all to, to someone, to someone else. And the Bible calls marriage a sacred union, because it is in that union with no one else on this earth that you're called to give your all. The only other relationship that's higher is your relationship with God. So if something is sacred, that means that there needs to be boundaries that no one else could enter into the sacred space. Let a sacred boundary be drawn around the relationship so that nothing will come between one's beloved. Let no one but God be allowed to come within this sacred circle. Can you imagine that? There's a little sacred circle around you and your beloved, and no one else is allowed to have the same affections, the same attention, the same you that you give your spouse. We need to be careful about guarding our affections. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 gives us some good advice on this grounds. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. And it says there, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so the Bible's calling us that you've been called to be Christians. You're free from the penalties and the guilt of sin, but this freedom shouldn't lead you to then fornicate or go into more sin, but to serve others, namely your spouse. And let me tell you that it has been seen a lot that infidelity begins many times with the infidelity of the heart and the emotions first. As this story was told, this man felt a void, and he went to seek a relationship with someone else. 
Do you know that a lot of people are committing adultery now online? They never meet the person, you know, face to face. They never spend time together physically, but they have a relationship with someone they started conversations online with. And people are now giving their affections to other people. So you need to watch out, especially if you spend more time with people who are not your husband or wife. Maybe you work in a place where you spend a lot of time with people that are not your family. Let's say you work in an office building and you are working on projects with the same person. You're accomplishing things together. You're going out to lunch on your breaks together. We need to be careful if you're starting to feel a draw to someone else other than your husband and wife that you need to immediately cut that relationship. Create boundaries so that they won't be crossed again. So guard one's marriage with all diligence. To commit adultery is not simply to be unfaithful to one's spouse, but to be more faithful to other things in life that take away time and energy from marriage. What do you guys think about that? That's a powerful definition of adultery, right? Because the opposite of adultery is being faithful to your spouse, but then that means adultery is being unfaithful to them. Unfaithful to them in also the things that take away from your spouse. What are other things that you could be more faithful to than your spouse? Any ideas? Can you be more faithful to work than your spouse? Yes, always putting your work first. That's the most important thing. That gets your affections. That gets your emotions. Definitely. What else can you be more faithful to? More faithful to children, right? That that relationship becomes before marriage. The time spent, the energy and the focus is on the children at the expense of your marriage. Anything else? Church activities. Hey, keep that one down. Don't say anything about that. Let's not bring that one up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even service towards others, right? In, in church ministry, all right? You know, it could be friends. It could be video games. It could be entertainment. It could be sports. You could be unfaithful to your wife in, in other areas, not just another, another person. And so it's important to remember that the number one human relationship is our spouses. All right, let's pledge. We pledge by the grace of God to be faithful to each other, to be faithful to each other. All right, number seven, you shall not steal. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. This one's so important. Listen to what it's talking about. You shall not rob his or her spouse of their potential, their gifts, their rights, their recognition, or pride. It is a privilege and joy to discover hidden treasures in your partner. Bring them to light, nurture, and encourage them to maturity, and finally bask in the reflected glow of their public recognition. A spouse has the power to, to lift up. Do not steal the potential of your spouse. Cynthia and Cecil have been married for 18 years. They have beautiful five-year-old son who is their pride and joy. But both Cynthia and Cecil were former athletes. Cecil was a former runner and Cynthia a former basketball player. They are very competitive 
and winning is everything. This competitive spirit to win at all costs has a negative effect on their marriage. They seem willing to run over each other, trying to outdo the other in order to capture the headlines. Among friends and family members, there's always a fierce competition to see whose version of events is accepted as a real story. They abruptly interrupt each other's conversations to make corrections of the other's narration of events. It is as if they are engaged in a constant battle to try and steal each other's glory. I mean, I think we've all been around couples like this, right? It's like they're almost working against each other then with each other. And many times you enter into a marriage relationship and there is the idea that one needs to rise at the expense of the other. Like, I'm so thankful I married you so I could now get a little higher by stepping up on you. But that is stealing their potential, stealing their values. Psalms 133 Verse 1 gives us instruction on this matter. Let's go to the book of Psalms 133 and verse 1. Psalms 133 and verse 1. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The word that stands out to me there is how pleasant it is. If you want a pleasant marriage, then do not steal the potential, the gifts, the things that your spouse brings into the marriage. In fact, we should be nurturing those things. We should not rob his or her spouse of their ability to fulfill their potential and to discover all that God wants them to be. Be a catalyst in their what? In their development. In their development. And I have been blessed by that in my wife and our relationship. We came from a competitive background, just like this couple that we read about. My wife ran track and I played basketball. And we're always very competitive. And I remember when we met in Mission College of Evangelism, We would study together and we would compete who would get better grades, who would get better grades in class. And who got better grades? All right, let's not say who got better grades. Okay. And as we got into the marriage relationship, we saw that this was a very negative trait, that we were always like almost competing against each other. We were not together. We were more divided. And so we did a little change. And this change started when instead of focusing on our development, we started focusing on each other's development. And I remember when I started encouraging her to go to nursing school, I said, honey, you're smart. You'll make a better nurse than me. You'll get better grades. And she was not sure. She's like, I'm not sure if I can make it. And I was her cheerleader. I remember that when she got into nursing school, we went out and celebrated. When she graduated, I was cheering and happy for her when she got her first job. When she came home from a bad day from work and she said, I don't think I could be a nurse Anymore, I said, listen, you're already 10 times the nurse that I ever was. And she started doing the same thing for me when I became a pastor. She said, these are the qualities I admire in you as a minister. This is the things I've seen you do with people that make me so happy. And I felt like, you know, I'm not sure if anyone else thinks I'm a good pastor, but if my wife thinks I'm a good pastor, I feel like I could do anything, right? And you see that, that no matter what the world thinks of you, when your spouse is proud of you, 
you feel like you are Samson. You feel like you could take on anything. But if we are robbing our spouses of their potential and their development, then we are ruining the marriage relationship. So who has been your biggest cheerleader in your life? If you're married, it should be your spouse. That would be a blessing. It says one should help discover the hidden treasures and undiscovered gifts within their partner, helping to bring them to light and all will benefit so that the marital experience can be enriched. It's amazing when you get married, it's actually not a finished product. There's such more qualities that could be developed in that person if you are encouraging them to be developed. And so, think about it. What can you help develop in your spouse? Let us pledge. All together now. We pledge by the grace of God to be catalysts of growth for each other. And the best catalyst for growth is when you encourage them to grow spiritually. When you encourage your spouse to grow spiritually, it is awesome. It is awesome. That is what we call intimacy. You shall not give false testimony. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. Exodus chapter 20 verse 16. What does it mean to give false testimony in the marriage relationship? It says, You should not blame one's spouse for mistakes and weaknesses or make unjust accusations. Be honest and straightforward in appreciation, confrontation, criticism, and conflict. Speak the truth in love. To operate from hypocrisy, from pretense, from mistrust, is to limit the other's opportunity for growth and to maturity. All right. I really want to focus in on this commandment because I think this is one of the core things that are important in marriage. Let's go to this verse that I think brings it together. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 26. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 26. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 26. Are you there? And different translation says, he who gives an honest answer or a truthful response. It says, he who gives a right answer kisses the, the what? Hmm, how do you interpret that one? How do you interpret that one? Right? And you know, the way I interpret it is this. That of all the ingredients for a happy marriage, there is probably nothing more important than what? Than trust. Honesty and truthfulness in all things. Listen to this. Without trust, there is no intimacy. Without what? Without trust, there is no intimacy. That's why the Bible's connecting truthfulness, which is connected to trust, to giving a kiss. In other words, you cannot have this intimacy of a kiss unless you have truthfulness or honesty in the relationship. Without trust, there is no intimacy. Without intimacy, there is no bonding. And without bonding, there is no true, true marriage. You see, relationships are built on trust. And you're not going to open yourself up. You're not going to be intimate unless you trust that person. And if there's constant lies, if there's constant secrets, if there's constant dishonesty, 
you're going to pull back. And you might still do intimate acts, but you don't have intimacy in the marriage. And without intimacy, there is no true bonding of becoming the one. I mean, that's the beauty about marriage. It's intimacy, becoming one, which is not only physical, but it's emotional. It's, it's everything. You know, when you find those couples have been married like 70 years, they know everything about each other. There is no secrets. They read each other right through. They have been open and honest, and they might not be physically intimate anymore because of their age, but there is a deep relational intimacy, and that is the beauty of marriage. And what destroys that? Lies, dishonesty, false accusations, and so forth. So a happy, joyous marriage rises or falls upon the delicate thread of trust. Marriage demands truthfulness and honesty. Without it, marriage becomes a hollow, empty relationship devoid of passion and intimacy. I mean, that is scary. Being in a marriage relationship where there's no passion and there's no intimacy. You know how we describe like church sometimes as just going through the motions or we're just doing it out of tradition? Many times that's the same with our relationship with God. When we don't trust Him, when we don't have a close relationship with Him, but we're still coming to church, it's like a dead faith. It's a dead faith. And many times that's the same in our marriage relationships where there's a loss of trust. There's a loss of passion. There's a loss of intimacy. And, you know, we are born with passions. And, but those passions are supposed to be directed in this sacred union. And when we don't have that, we're in danger of exposing it in other places. So be honest in your marriage relationship. One must trust one's spouse. If trust is broken, extend forgiveness and allow the Spirit of God to repair the broken trust. As we trust, it will be returned to us. Be truthful, sincere, honest, witness of what a happy marriage is all about. So, we must pledge to live out the truth in our marriage. Our last one here is found in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. What's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, some people say, right? So you shall not covet your neighbor's possession. One should not begrudge his or her spouse's gifts, strength, opportunities, or earning power. We will not stand higher for having stepped on the other person. One should not wish their partner to be something they are not. Learn gratitude for what you have chosen. Discover and appreciate the value of the treasure within your house. Hmm. So, let's read. Tyler and Tanya have been married for 25 years. They are the proud parents of two boys. They tried hard to build their marriage, but seem to have problems with covetousness. They desire what the other has. Instead of sharing what they have, they want to keep it for themselves. They seem to follow the old adage, what is yours is mine and what is mine is my own. They are jealous of each other's success. They do not see marriage as a team effort. Driven by their own selfish agenda, they seem interested only in their own welfare, seeing each other's gifts, talents, and resources 
as possessions to be added to their own, to enhance their own welfare. Neither is willing to help the other achieve success. On the contrary, they sabotage and undermine each other's efforts to attain goals. Tyler refuses to help Tanya with housework, even though Tanya works and is attending school. Tanya sometimes asks Tyler to help her with her homework, but he refuses because he's afraid that Tanya may actually succeed in her studies, making something of herself, earn more money than him, and achieve some personal independence. Tanya also refuses to help Tyler with his challenges and offers little support or encouragement. When Tyler fails in some of his efforts, she experiences a morbid sense of satisfaction and mutters to herself, Serves him right, he deserves that. The marriage is no longer beneficial to either, but has degenerated into a mutually destructive relationship. One should not desire gifts, talents, earning power, beauty, health, or anything that belongs to one's spouse. Joy and fulfillment is not in coveting, but in giving. Do you know how they say, like, when babies are born, they're like, oh, that's how we know that there's sin in this world, because little babies. No matter how cute and beautiful they are, are selfish little beings, right? It's all about themselves. It's all about do this for me and not thinking about the mother or their father or anything else. But let me tell you another time that this selfishness is exposed when you first get married. And you know, you enter into a marriage relationship and you really discover how selfish you are at that sometimes. And sometimes you don't know it until you're in the marriage relationship. I remember that for me and my wife, it began in the signing of the marriage certificate. We got to the office, you know, holding hands. I love you. You know, we're going to get married. So exciting. And we get our marriage certificate papers. And the lady asks, So what's the last name going to be? She says, Valentine. I say, Silva. No, we got to, it's, you're taking my name. No, I'm keeping my father's name. And we had never talked about this in our life. Now imagine in the big scheme of marriage and things, how important is this? It's ridiculous, right? And so all of a sudden, I'm trying to, this is me. You're entering a relationship with me to serve me and for me and the other way around. And that was our first fight of our marriage relationship, right? When we signed the marriage certificate, right? And now we look back and we laugh and we say, I mean, like, what, what's the point, right? Like, I don't know why we did that. And then we discover in our marriage relationship that when you first enter, you can make it about yourself and what your partner gives to you and coveting everything that they have to build you up. Or you could be about giving. You could be about giving to the other person. And so the Bible is teaching us that we should not covet In our relationships. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, bring this to view again. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So, In the marriage relationship, many times we enter thinking, what can this marriage relationship do for me? But if you do not grow weary in doing good for your spouse, you will see that doing good in the end will benefit both of you in a beautiful way. So don't get caught up in the selfishness that we bring into our marriage relationships. Another hiccup is, you know, uh, (laughs) 
I'm not sure uh, my wife what she was thinking. I think that be careful with advice from other people. Let me just say that. Okay, that's why we're studying the Ten Commandments of the Bible. Someone gave her the advice that she needed to protect herself and keep separate bank accounts when she got married. So we enter into a marriage relationship. And she said, you know what? I need my own bank account. I said, what? Own bank account? And the thing that made it so funny was that she didn't have a job. And so I said, what are you going to put in there? You know, I'm going to have my own money. You don't have a job. And so I finally convinced her to have a joint bank account with me and her. And I guess that someone had had an experience where their husband, you know, was very controlling and, you know, they had to ask permission to take out money. And so she brought that in. And now she looks back and she laughs at that because basically I'm the one who, well, now that she was working, but before it was I bring in the money and she controls it all. I mean, I don't do anything. It's her bank account with my name and her name on it. And so, you know, we bring in these ideas, these misconceptions from around us. And sometimes it's even giving us advice. Like in this marriage relationship, you need to assert yourself. You need to have your place. But friends, do not get into those lies. We're supposed to give. We're supposed to be able to build the other person up. And you will experience true intimacy and true love in the marriage. So give freely of love. Give freely of your time. Give freely of your resources to each other. And the Bible says that you will reap a great reward. We continue. We pledge. Let us pledge together. We pledge by the grace of God that we will never covet anything from each other, but we will freely share all that we have with each other and wish the best for each other. That sounds like a healthy relationship, doesn't it? So one more memory verse as we close up here in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Are you there? It says there, two are better than one. What is it talking about? Two. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Very relevant today. (laughs) Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. So what's this verse talking about? It's talking about two, 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 right? And the benefits. But then listen how it ends. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's interesting, right? So the Bible goes, you know, two, 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 their strength. But then in the end, it doesn't say a twofold cord. It says a three. So who's that third? Who's that third element? It's God. You see, when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, The people said, we shall keep them, right? And just a little while later, they were dancing around a golden calf, breaking their word. Because of ourselves, we can never keep the Ten Commandments. 
It is Christ in us and His righteousness that leads us to keep His commandments. And it's the same thing. I have given you ten commandments in this sermon for marriage in the previous sermon, but I have to tell you the truth. In your fallen sinful state, it is impossible. Your relationships and your marriages are doomed. If you will also say like the Israelites in Mount Sinai, I will do this. But here the Bible introduces a third element, a third person that says, if you are connected with your spouse and with God, then he will work these things out in your marriage relationship. And so a marriage relationship is really the bonds between your spouse and with God. A couple years ago when I was pastoring the church in Guam, we decided to have a marriage recommitment ceremony. And so all the couples in the church who were married were now going to do a marriage recommitment ceremony. It was awesome. Someone ordered a cake, a marriage cake. It was like this huge marriage cake. Some of these ladies were slipping on their marriage dresses they had saved like 40, 30 years ago. And we brought in people to do makeup and hair. The men, you know, got in their suits. They walked down the aisle to the marriage ceremony. It was a beautiful thing. And I remember one couple coming up to me so excited. They said, we've been married for 30 plus years, but we got married by a judge. We've never been married in a church. And for them, it was the most special thing because they said the first one was more like just a regular civil marriage, but here we're now doing it in the presence of God and inviting God into our marriage. And from that marriage recommitment ceremony, there was a revival in the marriages in our church because number one, they recommitted to each other, but now it was in the church and they were inviting God into their marriage relationship. And so it is the honor of a pastor when I stand here to marry people. It's the most awkward thing, by the way, for a pastor, because I'm used to preaching to people out there. But when you marry people, they're like right here. They're right close to you. And you're so afraid because if you mess up in any ways, this is the most special day of their lives. And it will remember how the pastor messed it up for the rest of their marriage. But Not only for that do I take it very serious, because in a sense, I'm not connecting just two people together. I'm connecting two people together with God in their marriage sacred ceremony. So, you have pledged to keep these commandments in your relationships, but you can't do it without Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? It always comes back to Him. And so, with his help, with his righteousness, you will not break Guinness World Records of marriages. You will have one marriage that will be a blessing to you, and you will be a blessing to your spouse, because Jesus is at the center. Let us be faithful to the Ten Commandments in our relationship with God, in our relationships with each other. How many people want to do that? Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can have a personal, close relationship with the creator and redeemer of the universe, with you, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Father through you. But at the same time, Lord, you created us to be relational beings with other people here. We thank you for the sacred institution of marriage. And we pray, Father, that we will think about these biblical principles of the Ten Commandments of Marriage, and that we would go into our marriage, not haphazardly, 
or just with good intentions, or just with fleeting emotions, but we will go in with an idea of how to love, truly love our spouses. I ask that this would become a reality, that those who are in marriage would put this into practice right away. Whether their spouse does or doesn't, that they would right away. I pray for those who are dating or thinking of marriage in the future, that you would also, Lord, start working in their lives so they could understand how to begin a marriage in a successful way. And Lord, those who have been hurt for past relationships, those who have come from broken relationships or broken marriages, I pray, Lord, that if it's your will, that you will bring someone else into their life, a Christian, a spouse. And if it's not their will for your life, Lord, I pray that your relationship with them would be enough, that your grace would be sufficient. This I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You have been listening to Stephen Silva, former pastor of the East Lansing University and Spanish Seventh-day Adventist churches, who has answered a call in California. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not this Sabbath visit a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.